0: welcome everyone to asian pacific voices radio where you'll find stimulating conversations about stories and topics that affect our communities i'm your host sasha Fu. today our guest is a chef and restaurant owner with a whole list of accolades to her name chef chidi kumar is introducing new flavors and foods through her restaurant aja in raleigh north carolina she's inspired in part by her south asian heritage in india Chidi Kumar draws on the wealth of fresh, locally sourced ingredients that are grown or produced in abundance in the North Carolina area. As a chef, she's been profiled by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She's also been recognized as someone to watch in the culinary world with numerous James Beard Award nominations, and we are delighted to welcome Chef Chidi Kumar to this episode of Asian Pacific Voices. Hey, Chidi. Hi, Sasha. So nice to be here. Glad to have you. We start many of our podcasts by learning more about the family and your origins. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about your family in particular
1: um, and your roots. You were born in India. Um, Actually, I was born in Pittsburgh. um, But my parents were here. Yeah, they were here on a five-year visa and um, my mom chose to maybe not extend that Uh, that visa and then she got pregnant and it was too late for her to change her mind. So uh, I was six months old. We moved back to India. We lived in Chandigarh until I was eight and a half. Um, And Chandigarh is a city in Punjab. Uh, It's actually the capital. And then we moved uh, from India to the Bronx when I was eight and a half. Okay. I am sorry about getting that mixed
0: up. I remember that you did tell me that and it was unusual because you made 2 cross-country transits your family when at an early age. And it was kind of traumatic for your mother in particular. I know that for many immigrant families, there's a sense of loss when they leave their, old, their, their home countries. How did your family maintain their ties to India and to their family, even when they were transplanted into a completely new environment? As you say, this was New York City.
1: Yeah and it was you know uh, not like Manhattan or even Queens that has such a rich Asian population we were in the Bronx that really didn't have much of a community from India um and when i went, you know i was in the 4th grade and uh didn't really have any kids around me that um talked like me, sounded like me, you know, there were a lot of people of color, but there were, you know, people from the, uh, Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic and, you know, it was it was diverse. So in that sense, I didn't feel um, like the only non-white person in the classroom, but um, certainly I had, you know, pretty thick accent and I was very much, you know, a little immigrant child. So there was definitely a feeling of um, displacement and, you uh, Discomfort, a lack of security. I think a lot of families have that experience of moving and not having their green card approved for three years. So, for a long time, we didn't know if we could stay or not. Um, it was particularly hard for my mother, who, you know, I think uh, she had suffered such a traumatic loss and change as um, a young girl because, you know, her family. My maternal side is all from Pakistan, originally were Hindus that were Punjabi, Pakistani. And when Pakistan was created, their whole family was forced to leave and her parents were killed in that partition. So every time there was a, a major move, and my mom definitely en- endured many of those in her lifetime, uh, I think she was very triggered by that experience. And then moving, you know, at that point, when I was eight and a half, my sister was almost 16, my brother was five, had a full-fledged family, um, and moving to a culture, and definitely they have planned on this being their permanent, you know, home, being, never going back to India if the visa was going to work out. She really um, navigated a lot of uh, sort of existential um problems, I think, uh, how to raise a family, how to raise two daughters, especially a teenage daughter and my sister, keeping the heritage, keeping the values that they value, but knowing that it was not realistic for us to live in a bubble and maintain, you know, being like strict Indian, um, culturally insulated people. I mean, I think... My mom, I remember her saying that I want you kids to be citizens of the world. I don't want you to feel like you're limited by conservative Indian values. And she was definitely forward thinking as far as like, you know, uh, her daughters being strong, independent, self-reliant, not carrying the traditional cultural um, boundaries that India can sometimes represent. So I think with all that, food was such an anchor for our family, mostly because she really valued home cooking. We ate dinner and she cooked dinner every night at home. We had a home cooked meal. Everybody sat at the table together. We might be fighting, might be miserable, but we did it anyway. Um, And I think for for her, food was such a powerful um, tool of memory and connection because she never was able to go back to her childhood home. And she recognized that same similarity in her children now. And the the thing that she carried through her whole life was these memories of food. She was always very food-driven and I think that's sort of the, the gene that got passed down to me. Yeah, apparently it was passed down to you. When you saw
0: your mother cooking and possibly doing cooking techniques as a child, Did this leave an impression upon you i'm sure I, at the you know conscious level you weren't thinking oh this is a way for me to keep preserving my ties to my indian heritage but at some level now as an adult you must look back on that and think i was sort, you know kids are sponges they absorb so much
1: yeah i mean i remember being you know 4 or 5 in india and seeing like my grandmother boil milk and make parathas and you know roll rotis and you know all of the things I was just always naturally drawn to the kitchen, and I would kind of like waffle between or just like shuttle myself between the kitchen and then the stereo and I would just be sort of immersed in that world of music and the smells of the kitchen and i could I knew when the milk was up I could smell it, and my grandmother would be scraping the pot of like you know the stuff that gets caramelized on the bottom and she'd scrape and put a little sugar and put it in my mouth. And, you know, these, these are like very, um, now very like palpable sensory memories. And for whatever reason, I was the kid in the family that was just always very curious about what was being done in the kitchen. And my mom also just carrying all that trauma. I think she was also very emotionally, I knew at a very early age that she had suffered this loss and, for me, being connected to her emotionally was a way of protecting her from more heartbreak and um, I really wanted to find any way that I could to make her feel not alone and I think being with her in the kitchen and being interested in what she was making maybe a subconscious way for me to get close to her and for her to feel like there was somebody in the world that really loved her unconditionally you know
0: oh that's that 's really beautiful.
1: Food and cooking
0: are these enduring bonds. And sometimes when language fails us, that's the vocabulary in which we express our love and affection. That's, that's a beautiful 100%. story. Well, your path from school and growing up in the United States to becoming a chef wasn't exactly a straight line. <laughs> no, I don't have many straight lines. It wasn't exactly a straight line. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did before you became a chef and restaurant owner?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I went to um, college in Amherst, Massachusetts at the university of Massachusetts. I worked at the radio station more than I attended classes. I studied psychology, but I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. Um, I was always drawn to the whole, um, you know, world of bands and, live music, even though I wasn't really allowed to go to shows as a kid. Um, Once I started, it was just like, man, it was the, I I just loved the whole process of, you know, that connection that bands have with their audience. And so I worked on the concert board and I, I think I just really wanted to be a musician, but I didn't have the guts or the experience. I never was gifted the guitar that I always wanted as a kid. Um, So I didn't really learn how to play until much later, but I figured that I could make a career out of management or some sort of behind the scenes thing. And that was a career that I could explain to my parents, like, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a psychologist, but I'm going to do this business and business is a word that they could kind of get behind because, you know, maybe that meant security. And I did pretty well, you know, I was 22. I started my own company and, um, did that for a few years. And then all my bands broke up around the same time and I was left without a company. So I'd already met my now husband. And so we decided, he's like, you know, you just want to play music. You don't want to manage these musicians. Um, Play. Let's you know, start a band. So we started a band and bought a uh, an ex-prison van in the state auction lot and booked a tour and went on tour and then kind of stayed on tour with a couple of different bands for ten years. And so I did that. And in the meantime, you know, while I was touring, and it became such a such a relentless, like a, like a cycle. And I, I loved it, but it's also really hard and it's hard to make a living as an inpe- independent you know musician. So I got a job in a restaurant. Um, initially, I was just in the kitchen for uh, about a year, but once we really started touring, I needed to make more money. Um, so I asked to bartend. So I bartended the whole time we were touring. So I'd come home from a six week tour and work, you know, 10 bar, they gave me my shifts back every time for some reason. And um, so I was kind of like doing, living this duality. And while all I was touring, I was dreaming about food and reading about food and studying food. Um,
0: I want to jump in and ask you a little bit about how you went about educating yourself about food and cooking. You didn't have uh, the privilege or advantages of perhaps having an immersive experience in one of these you know, fancy culinary institutes or working as the apprentice for some uh, Michelin-starred chef. So you did a lot of due diligence on your own.
1: Is that right? I did. I, I educated myself. I read a lot of cookbooks from cover to cover. Like there were novels and I would, you know um, – watch Great Chefs, Great Cities on PBS. And, you know, just like really, uh, I was studying and uh, I would practice and try different recipes at home. And I would explore our local culinary um, sources, you know, I'd go to the farmer's market. We One advantage that Raleigh has is we have a very big, old state sponsored farmers market that's open 363 and a half days a year. And um, it's not fancy. It's not like, you know, uh, organic or anything. It's just sort of like a heritage of agriculture that's very rich here. And so you can get anything seasonally. And so I've really learned about um, what grows when. And um, then there's a really diverse Asian population in this area too. So there's a lot of markets that are Chinese and Korean and Indian and Thai. And uh, a guy from Laos owns one market. So I could get any kind of ingredient from any part of Asia um, that I wanted. And I just thought marrying those two was so interesting and it really worked. And it it made sense to me because my, my parents would go to the market in India And in northern India, there are a lot of uh, crossover. There's a lot of similarities. So the seasons, you know, it's a little hotter there. Well, it used to be. Now it's hot everywhere. But, um, you know, eggplant, okra, tomatoes, mustard greens, uh, you know, long beans. Like It's like, oh, my God, it's the same stuff. So to me, you know, cooking in this part of North Carolina makes sense with the palette and the pantry that I grew up with you know, versus say doing a Nordic restaurant would be odd here because it's not the right kind of climate for those ingredients. So, um, it just was serendipity that, it, that it worked out that way, but I really, you know, try to study all aspects of it, but nothing can really prepare you for the vast, uh, and deep ooh, a learning experience of operating and, uh, running a kitchen in a professional restaurant. You know, it's, that's a lot.
0: We talk on this program a lot about breaking barriers as, a woman of color in the culinary world. Did you feel you had to struggle for recognition and respect?
1: I, you know, really did. Um, but I think that, you know, looking back, I can see that, but in the moment, I didn't really attribute those, uh, feelings of inferiority to my race or my gender so much. Like I, I, I kind of never thought about that until later. Um, in, in the moment I I tend to internalize those feelings and think that it's about me, that I'm not good enough. And, um, they, you know, the, the imposter syndrome that everybody talks about now a decade ago, wasn't really a thing that was in the vernacular of, um, of the chef world. It wasn't, you know, uh, as accepted, I think the culture of the country has changed quite a bit in the last three to five years. Um, but I I think I just always always felt so kind of uh, inferior or had shame or I don't know, whatever it was left over from my experience as a child. Um, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was just straight up misogyny and, and racism. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I felt... Like I had a disadvantage for a lot of other reasons. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, the first two reasons were my gender and my race. Well, it's
0: interesting looking back, I guess, you know, they say hindsight is 50-50. 2020. And uh, it's interesting when we look back on past experiences, I've, this has happened to me and I didn't interpret something as being racist or um, gender bias, but now I can see clearly that that's what it was. So it's interesting as we get older, our, our prisms, our lenses change. I wanna ask you a little bit about um, the kind of food that you create at AJA. I, I, we've heard this term fusion cuisine. Um, I think it's bandied about a little bit too liberally because it applies to a lot of different kinds of food that I, in my experience. How would you describe the food that you cook at Aja? Aja.
1: Well, Aja um, well, is only about a month old. Um, Garland, you know, was my restaurant that I had for nine years. That was my nine and a half years. Um, and that really got called Fusion. And I, honestly, I, I feel like there's an inherent racism in that term in itself. Okay. I think when people draw on European uh, influences, they're called inspired. They say Italian inspired or like I cook. You know, seasonally, I really, you know, we're a farm to table restaurant with Italian inspiration. Um, Nobody calls that an Italian fusion restaurant. Right. Uh, It's I think a lot of chefs that have a perspective are cooking from a time and place and the place is informed by where they live and where they're influenced by or where they're from or where their family's family of heritage is from. Um, I think fusion is relegated to Asian people a lot of times because we're um, expected to carry the burden of authenticity and represent, you know, our entire nation of where our parents are from. And we might have never lived there, but, you know, if you happen to have that, like, you know 100% dna uh heritage you're like oh yeah i'm i'm supposed to cook this way and that in itself i think is such a uh limitation that is put upon by our our people and to me like the worst reviewers that we have are people from india you know there's this weird expectation of limitation that we put on ourselves, that we put on our people. I look at chefs in India, and they have a lot more creative freedom, and they don't get called fusion. They just get called innovative. Um, and I think a lot of white chefs in, in this country can be influenced by Asian countries, and they don't get called fusion. They get called you know innovative, or they, they have this broad vocabulary. So I kind of resent the word fusion because also to me, it's, um, it's a pretty dated term. And it, to me, it applies to a very specific blend of French and Japanese technique from the 90s or the 80s. And that's not what I do. I like to be inspired by uh, connections of, uh, you know, food ways that are influenced by people migrating voluntarily, voluntarily or involuntarily. I like the way spices of moved around the planet. And I like to find those commonalities between people, especially in certain parts of Asia. And that's that's what I, I'm inspired by. So long answer, but the F word.
0: <laughs>
1: I I want to apologize because I, I don't want you to
0: think that I am using fusion cuisine with respect to what you're cooking. I understand that the term is dated. And oh, it's interesting yeah. that, yeah, I understand that the term is dated. and I And I think that you're right, that there is sort of a a kind of Western-centric uh, aspect to using that term. Remember when, I don't know, when I was a kid, there was to check the box for race, there was white, black, and other. <laughs> and to me, it's like fusion cuisine, sort of like, okay, you you either cook, you know, Europe in the European tradition or your other. Because <laughs> um, for right, a while, exactly. I think that, um, American palates didn't know, well, I, what's the difference between Thai or Indian or Chinese or, you know, Jamaican, it's just other.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's curry. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. uh, I mean, even now I think, you know, it's um, yeah. Asia is such a vast, diverse place and certainly a lot bigger than Europe, but you know, Europe gets to have the specialties of each country, but Asia is a big blob in a lot of Western minds.
0: What do your parents and family members think of your success? Um, you know, in many, especially Asian, I think, immigrant families, success is defined kind of rigidly, at least it was for me. You're either a scientist or a doctor or um, a successful business person. Uh, you're a, you are a successful business person. Let me put that out there. But what do you, how do your parents see your success now?
1: Well, um, my parents, I think, thought that when I started a company as a band manager initially, they were like, "Oh, okay, she's young enough to, you know, still recover from this." But um, definitely, it was a, it was a tough sell for me to not go to grad school. Um, I think they really were very uncomfortable with it. I think my dad, in particular, was not so thrilled about the aspect prospect of like me not being a quote unquote professional and then when i started playing music i remember calling my mom from a payphone in pensacola florida and saying i love being on tour and this is what i want to do i'm the happiest i've ever been and she said you know do it go for it and i think my mom was a lot more open to that idea and supportive and even if she had doubts she once i became an adult Um, really tried to convey that she believed in me and that I could do whatever I wanted. Um, I don't think she fully believed that. But um, once the restaurant opened, you know, my mom only came one time um, in like the few months after we opened and then she died three years later. um, I think you know, I don't really know how to answer that because I think that there's nothing that you can actually do to make your parents feel like you're successful, um, in our community anyway. So I just focus on not, um, needing external validation quite as much as I was raised to need it. Um, but definitely, you know, my parents didn't disown me, but they were also very worried for a long time. And, um, it didn't help me find my path because I was always second-guessing. I always kind of feel their like hesitation about it, you know. But after a certain time, you're like, well. Yeah, this is, this is my path. Yes. This is what
0: I've chosen. And, you know, screw the skepticism and the questions. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm glad you hewed to your path, Judy. Let's go back to the kitchen now. I'm curious about what are the inspirations for, besides, you know, having this plethora of wonderful, fresh ingredients around you, what are the flavors that inspire you? What are the dishes that you like to explore or the flavors you like to explore?
1: Um, well, with Aja, you know, after closing Garland, I was already kind of working on Aja. Aja is a very small, the, the inside of the building is only about 1800 square feet, and more than half, like half of that is taken by the kitchen. Uh, the vast majority of our seating, well, most of our seating is outside, and it's a covered patio, and it's got this really nice view. It's kind of like a, somebody's really great backyard. Um And so that whole the whole space kind of feels very Mediterranean, modern Mediterranean to me. And I was inspired by the space to create a menu that explored more narrowly the region of, you know, northwest India. And I mean, that's not a narrow region, but like Levantine area. Um, I wanted a lot of vegetable forward dishes that are, you know, at Aja, we used, I mean, at Garland, we used, you know, olive oil, coconut oil, um, grapeseed oil, peanut oil, sesame oil. Like, just even if I focus on the oils, that kind of told the, the story of the palate of our cuisine. At Aja, we only pretty much use olive oil and one neutral oil. So it's olive oil based. It's very bright. Um, it's light feels good in the space to eat that way. We have really delicious homemade bread that's kind of Tunisian-ish inspired. I still like to stay away from the standards of menus that are, you know, I'd never put butter chicken on my menu at Garland and I'm not going to put hummus on my menu at Aja. Um, So I think that there's a diversity of um, dishes that people maybe not are able to, maybe aren't able to find on menus in this part of the country. So uh, I just, I love the inspiration of uh, Persian, Indian, Afghani, Tunisian, Moroccan uh, for Aja. So that's, that's where the inspiration comes from.
0: When you design the menus for Garland and Aja, I imagine that they change by season. Um, This may sound like a silly question, but what's your favorite season?
1: No, no, it's not silly at all. Oh, you know, I really I love the start of every season because things are new. <laughs> so, I mean, like uh it's really hard to compete with the uh the dawn of spring when all of the green things come in and you know, asparagus and sugar snap peas and little baby root vegetables and uh overwintered carrots that are super sweet. Uh the greens are great like you know, I, lo- I, like, I like having an all green menu and that season doesn't last very long. So you really have to jump on it. And I love the feeling of grabbing that stuff and even only having it for maybe three to six weeks, depending on when our first like big heat wave comes through here. Um, I like I like the fleeting nature of that. And it happens before I can even get sick of it and it's gone. You know, I, lo- I kind of like that. Um, but, you know, the beginning of I mean, summer is great because I think there's three seasons in summer and that transition to fall is also really fun. Um, Winter is great, too, but, you know, it's hard to change the menu very often when it's just cold. Do you have a
0: signature dish, so to speak, or are there customers who followed you and say, oh, I really like this this dish that you had at Garland. I, I, I hope you have some sort of adaptation or some sort of variation on that at Aja.
1: Um, yeah, we had a cauliflower 65. That was sort of our, our big anchor. Um, but right now, I'm I'm just kind of resistant to signature dishes. I feel boxed in by it. And it's kind of like, we'll see. We'll see if there's something that people really glom onto. But we're just finding our legs right now. But the cauliflower 65 will not be on this menu. <laughs> Chidi's probably not going to say she
0: has a, a, a signature dish because she doesn't want to be, and I, and I was thinking, boxed in, it was like too rigid to be, say, oh yeah, I do this and that. Because you strike me as somebody who yeah. likes to keep
1: evolving and, and changing. Yeah, sometimes it's not a good business decision, but it's still, <laughs> I can't, I can't we want it any other way. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's I, right, right. I love to ask people who are involved with food, either growing food, producing food, making food about food literacy. It strikes me that in this country especially and in western culture in general that we are increasingly feeding ourselves with processed foods and children in fact have a difficult time conceptually understanding where food comes from. <laughs> It actually milk comes from a cow, not, you know, a carton. Um, Yeah. Yeah. What can, what do you think you can do to help? um, Well, what are your thoughts about our food literacy right now in the United States?
1: Well, I think that um, hopefully we've kind of, reached the peak of of processed food uh, dependency. And I think the conversation about local, seasonal, organic, uh, vegetable, plant-forward, plant-based diet um, is becoming a little bit more, you know, common. I think that's that's a conversation that, you know, every week, every day, there's probably an article out about all of the various reasons, the health of our bodies and the health of our planet, the health of our economy, you know, relying on local, locally grown vegetables, and eating that is good for all the way around. Um, but I think education, you know, our school system uh, is definitely responsible for the establishment of that, that literacy. And sadly, food is not really a part of um, the American public school system. And um, during, well, before the pandemic, I did a lot of work with nonprofits that were trying to help support, you know, school lunches and kids being able to just have food. I mean, North Carolina in itself is in the top 10 for uh, child food insecurity, which is absolutely absurd to me because like we just got through talking about all the abundance of, of produce that we have here and what a rich agricultural heritage we have. And yet our children are not getting enough to eat. Um, I mean, that, you know, we could have an entire conversation about how broken on every level the systemic food system of our country is. Um, and I don't know what the answer to it is except that, you know, again, I try to like really make non-meat based things, you know, the, the majority of our menu and like I'm limiting what we're doing with meat on our menu. Um, and I really hope like as, as we grow this restaurant, Aja is in a neighborhood and I want, you know, like some sort of community um, involvement that is about food literacy for children to be a part of what we do, whether it's on our property or us supporting, you know, community farms and school farms and school gardens that are growing food. I mean, I just think that that's such an important part of moving our culture and our society forward. It, there's, there's no way to have a, 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 a healthy society without people understanding what to put in their bodies and how to eat.
0: Yeah, I love those ambitions for you and your restaurant. Not only are you feeding people, uh, feeding their bellies, but you're also feeding their their knowledge and their their minds and helping them understand uh, that they can work towards a more uh, more sustainable planet and a healthier future.
1: Yeah, feeding their future bellies.
0: Yeah, their future bellies, <laughs> the bellies of their future <laughs> kids too.
1: That's right. <laughs> uh, um, That's right.
0: Do you have any words of um, it's like wisdom or a counsel or guidance for other young people? Put yourself. I mean, it. You didn't, as I said, you didn't take a straight line from college to the kitchen. But other people who have a sense of where they might want to go, but they're unsure of themselves, or not quite sure that the path they they dream of taking is the one they should start pursuing because of all kinds of like either parental pressures or social pressures or just self-doubt. What is your, what are your words of wisdom or counsel to, to folks like that?
1: Well, you know, I wish when I was younger, um, I didn't, you know, there's uh which thought are you going to be, Guided by, well, who's your boss? Is the doubt your boss or is your ambition the boss? And I think the sooner that you can um, match your skills with your passion, um, you know, dreams are great, but you actually have to do and uh, amassing knowledge and experience is a great way to squash those self doubts. Um, So don't wait, you know, just uh, I think find the thing that puts a smile on your face, pay attention to the uh, the driving and the driving force the 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 things in your life that give you force and give you energy and doubt is a is a is a negative uh emotion and it, it's depleting um so don't pay attention to that because you don't want to live a depleted life you want to enrich your life focus on the things that make you happy and and recharge you and learn as much as you possibly can get the skills under your belt there's nothing like repetition to make you skilled at something, get 10,000 hours of of practice of whatever it is that you love to do. Um, Get good at it and you will succeed if you don't let doubt be your guiding principle. I love your optimism. Thank you so much for your
0: thoughts on this. If people want to follow you, um, the progress of your restaurant or just find out what you've been up to, how do they do that?
1: Uh, Well, I'm on Instagram at at Cheetiku, C-H-E-E-T-I-E-K-U. And you can follow Aja at Aja Eats uh, on Instagram. And our website is ajaeats.com. Uh, I think we're on Facebook too, but I've never been on Facebook. So I'm not sure how it works, <laughs> but Aja <laughs> Eats is our handle. Um, Okay. I think you'll, I think we'll find you through Raja Eats.
0: Thank you so much, Chidi. Chidi Kumar, our guest today on Asian Pacific Voices. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, about any suggestions you might have for future shows, guests, or topics. And also be sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and on our Asian Pacific Voices YouTube channels. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, ACMA, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian Pacific Islander communities with a voice through the media arts. If you would like to support our program, please visit AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm your host, Sasha Fu. Thanks for tuning in. And until then, take care.